Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome back to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague Stuart Mandel. Lots to get into this week on the podcast. Stu, you were down in Tuscaloosa. You got to see the game of the century. I watched it from the press box in Oklahoma. It looked like it lived up to the hype from the TV side. What was it like to be in the building? Yeah, it was awesome. There, there's, there, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was uh, obviously an extremely entertaining game, exactly what we thought we might see with these two great quarterbacks duking it out. And then I just can't say enough about the spectacle that is an Alabama home game now. Or, I mean, it's always been a great spectacle. Um, but you know, if you watched one of their night games earlier in the season, you saw them break out these LED lights. It's like, so it got dark in the second half. They were able to bring that out. One of the fun things about Alabama games to me has always been, whether it's them swinging, singing Sweet Home Alabama before the game or Dixieland Delight. I think they do that in the fourth quarter. Now you've got this coordinated light show to go along with it and the whole crowd singing along. I mean, it, it's fun. It's just, and I'd say that about a lot of, a lot of big game atmospheres that we go to, but uh, with the stakes of this one, with the president in the building, uh, with, with uh, you know, just just this, um, I mean, just just the the rarity of seeing a performance like we saw from Joe Burrow against that Alabama defense. Yeah, I had fun. Okay, so let me ask you this: We talked about our predictions going into the game, and you didn't. You thought Alabama was going to win and 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 cover, not by much, but cover. When did you realize, oh boy, this might this might go a lot different than I thought? <laughs> Uh, first quarter, uh, it, I mean, I, it, I go back now and I wish I had stuck to my gun because I really did feel like this was going to be LSU's year and that Alabama's defense was vulnerable up until like the week of the game or two two weeks leading up to the game. And uh, I, I leaned, I think, a little too heavily into that just kind of blind faith a lot of us have in Alabama, including the pollsters who only dropped them to fourth on uh, Sunday. Can we get to the blind faith in Alabama th- thing in a little bit after the game? Because I, I think that's a, that's a significant point going forward. I wanted to ask you this, and this was a little dialogue you and I had over over text during the game. And I think one thing that's kind of got lost to me is sometimes, you know, we, Joe Burrow's been awesome, and there's no doubt about that. I mean, I think he's going to win the Heisman. I don't think it's lock, but I definitely think he's got a huge lead right now. Um but as I'm watching it, and what I think I texted you, and I'm going to sugarcoat the text, and it was like, don't bleep on Clyde. And I don't think people realize how good of a running back and how big of a weapon Clyde Edwards-Hilaire has become. And to see him, he almost always makes the first guy miss. To see him gut out on you know some plays, whether he he's great as a receiver. He, I think the pro football focus stat, 74 of his 103 rushing yards came after contact. And that's against Alabama. That's not against a small team. I mean, when you start seeing the efforts that some of these other guys have had, I think that's the part that has changed. I mean, we saw Alabama for years shut down Leonard Fournette, shut down Darius Geis. This other guy who was a three-star running back has been really a revelation this year, and I just don't think he gets enough credit. Well, he first of all, you were absolutely right. He's a stud. That spin move for the touchdown was incredible. They just haven't had to depend on him because Burrow and those receivers have been so good. But this obviously was a game where it took all four quarters. And, you know, it was – I mean, I think what – first of all, this LSU offense, I mean, let me just say – and I had seen it against Texas, obviously. But seeing it against Alabama in a stadium where you're just so used to seeing Alabama – 
shut down LSU and, and pretty much anybody else they play. It's really something to behold. It is, you and I talked about this last week. Um, Pete Thamel had a good story about this, you know, with some anonymous coaches. I talked to uh, somebody Saturday who's pretty familiar with it. It's, it, it reminds me of when the Chip Kelly era at Oregon, where you just felt like you were watching something revolutionary. And it's not like this is overly complicated. It's actually a fairly small playbook from what I understand. But they, Joe Burrow has so many different ways to react both before the snap and after the snap that, I mean, I think that Joe Brady, I think you're the one who used this line, Joe Brady, he has an answer for everything. And that's what it felt like because when you're in the press box, you can watch, I think, what the defense is doing a lot better than you can on TV. They were Alabama was trying everything. They were disguising blitzes. They were bringing different kinds of pressure. Now, I think this was a, a good reminder of how young and inexperienced they are in their front seven because Burrow was basically just playing mind games with them. And the, the play, I think, that illustrated that the best was in the fourth quarter after Alabama had yet again scored to cut it to one uh, one score deficit. He had that RPO play where it sure looked like he was going to run. He faked all the linebackers into thinking he was going to run, and then he pops it downfield uh, for for a long play. Uh, it just seems like he's 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 winning that battle every time, and he's completing almost eighty percent of his passes. Uh, and then and and not to mention the um, you know the the more than one situation in the second half where it's third and short, and LSU goes five wide, which Les Miles would would not love and uh and he takes off and nobody touches him for 10 15 yards it's really something to behold uh it's it's just what a testament to or what a credit to ed ogeron for completely reinventing this thing uh in the span of a year yeah one of the things that and again the the thing i go back to my trip there in in uh april at the beginning of april the thing that ogeron kept on saying is we've got answers and whatever they throw, I think that's the thing of the counter punches to it. And they executed a, a, an incredibly high level. I do think that what you've seen now is, I mean, they have really good receivers. I mean, I don't, they're not, I don't know if they're as good as the first four that Alabama has. They're different, though. I mean, Jamar Chase is such a physically talented receiver. He's physical, he's tough. And what's crazy is, um, I watched the game in the OU press box, and I watched it with Barrett Jones and a couple of the the uh, game day radio guys who were part of his crew. And it was interesting to watch it with Barrett because obviously he played at Alabama, knows this program probably as well as anybody. And so early on, he said uh, he observed that it was after the Tua fumble. And um, you know it's interesting. I didn't think about this till now, but like so, Barrett and his crew show up probably like three plays into the game. And the first two plays Alabama had were like a 25-yard pass and a 25-yard run. So they're already deep into LSU territory. And he walked in. It was almost like he was like, oh, they're already down here. This is, it was almost like this is going to be easy. And then right after he sat down, Tua has the fumble. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, his observation was what Alabama's defense looked like it was going to do was really to test how patient LSU could be, you know, with, with two deep safeties. And, okay, they're going to put it on them to run the ball. Well, they got a couple of plays where they made positive yardage, and then they made it really look easy on the first touchdown drive. And to be honest, um, if Joe Burrow doesn't, Joe Burrow missed, and he didn't miss many, but he missed early in the third quarter on the first drive. If he doesn't, there's a really good chance that that game is forty to thirteen after the first drive in the third quarter. And then when you see Alabama start to get some momentum on offense, I kept on thinking in the back of my head, here's what's different about this. This offense is going to get another touchdown or two. Like, I think Gary Danielson said, I know you didn't have the benefit of listening to the broadcast, but he said uh, that I really believe LSU is going to have to score a touchdown here if they're going to win. Well, they obviously scored more than one, but you just come to now having seen this offense a lot this year that they're not getting shut down. They may give up a bunch of points on defense against an explosive offense, but they're not this is so much different than what we've seen in the past. So, you know, taking this forward now and this is we kind of touching on what you said a couple of minutes ago. All right, so what are the what do the committee think of 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 where Alabama is? 
I know that some people had said, oh, maybe you can write them off. Here's the problem I would have with with what Alabama's situation is going to be. And I'm curious if you agree or disagree. And I know you wrote something on this in your forward pass column uh, on Monday, which is if they somehow do, let's say Alabama runs the table and they finish 11-1, and one, which isn't a stretch. Uh, you know, they have Mississippi State, which is 4-5, and five, FCS, Western Carolina, and then Auburn at the end. They would have, if they were to get in the playoff, probably as weak a resume as anybody would have been in the playoff. Because I'm going to rattle through some of these things, and you tell me what you, what you know, what the committees to make of this eyeball test and all Nick Saban's history and all. Here we go. Right now, they beat Duke. These are, I'm just going to give you the Power Five teams. They beat Duke. Duke is four and five. They beat South Carolina. They're four and six, and probably going to go four and eight. They beat Ole Miss, who's four and six and still has to play LSU this week. They're not going to. They're going to be under 500. They beat AM, which will look very good at six and three, yet AM still has to go to Georgia and LSU. AM's probably going to be no better than seven and five. They have Arkansas, who's the worst power five team in college football, just got blown out by Western Kentucky. One of their better wins, turns out, might be Tennessee, who's now five and five and could finish seven and five. Then we got Mississippi State and Auburn, which, by the way, plays Georgia. So if they do. You know, it's probably realistic that Auburn's not going to be better than 8-4. and four. And they gave up 45 points at home or 46 points at home to LSU. I mean, if you're at the committee, the eyeball test and all, that's great. But doesn't there have to be some resume that gives you some, some backing for that? Well, obviously Alabama fans have gone into spin, full-on spin mode since this game, uh, pointing out that my favorite is the, well, they they couldn't have played worse in the first half and they still only lost by five points. So clearly that shows how good they are. And it's like, ugh, you just want to pound your head against the table. I think that this will be the dominant debate down the stretch of the season because, I mean, first of all, would you agree that LSU, barring a complete collapse, has basically clinched a spot in the playoff? I think they can lose a game. And their you think they can lose so to Georgia in the SEC title game and still get in? Yeah, there will be this. It would be the same position Alabama was in last year. You know that when they were losing, was it twenty one seven, twenty eight seven in the SEC title game, and it looked like they were going to lose, but all that meant was it was going to bump somebody else out of the playoff. Their resume is so much better than anybody else's that I think they could lose. They could lose to Texas A and M and turn around and win the SEC. Obviously, that would be a no brainer. But yeah, I think if they lost to Georgia in the SEC title game, they'd still be in. So, you know, that's one playoff spot. Uh, I think we would agree that the Big Ten champion would would get the other spot unless it's, uh, and we're going to get into Minnesota later, unless it's like, I don't know, 11-2 and two Wisconsin or 11-2 and two Minnesota. As long as it's uh, either undefeated or one loss Ohio State or Twelve and one Penn State. That team's going to be in. What about a Clemson's twelve and one? Win. What about a twelve and one Minnesota? Yes, well, they, to get, yes, they would get to, in. To yeah, because if they if they're twelve and one, right? Doesn't that mean they beat Ohio State? Yes, that well, they beat somebody to get there, right? Yeah, they would have two top ten wins. They'd be in. Uh, Clemson's going to be in. They're going to be undefeated. If they lose, they won't. But if they're going to be undefeated, so you're basically talking about this one spot, which. The candidates are Big 12 champion, Pac-12 champion, or Alabama. And for all the reasons you said before, I don't know how you could justify putting Alabama in there. Now, you could say you could do the old who would be favored on a neutral field test. I mean, right now, they'd still be favored on a neutral field against pretty much anybody. That shouldn't be. That shouldn't carry. That shouldn't carry weight. I agree. You could go with the eye test. You could go with the... I mean, we just spent all this time talking about... Stu, I think the eye test is what you just said. I think the eye test basically is the who would be a favorite on a neutral field. That's the same right. point, I think. Well, guess what? I thought My eye test said Minnesota, Penn State was going to beat Minnesota handily. My, my eye test said uh, Georgia would have no problem with South Carolina. That, you can't, if you're going to do that, then, then why play the games? Why, have, why have, keep score? It's just let's, let's play 12, 13 games each and then... We'll all get together and say, you know who I liked best? Who I think looked really good? Alabama. Um, so the question then becomes, what's going to carry more weight? Uh, 
that eye test thing we're talking about or conference championships because uh, if, if let's say Utah runs the table and they're 12 and one, I love Utah, but I don't think a lot of people would say even then that they think Utah is a better team than Alabama, but Utah to me would have earned it at that point. Alabama wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, I would make the case that they would, that, that they certainly would have earned it. I mean, the, you starting to look at what they've done. Now they lost. And I think we were both in the building for, for them losing to USC uh, that was a game we did on a Friday night. But since then, I mean, they have some 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 pretty good wins. They don't have any great wins. But I think winning their conference title, doing it against an, an Oregon team that at that point we think will be 12, would be 11-1, and one, uh, I think that would carry some weight. They're not going to get much push over the last three games. Improved UCLA at Arizona, who stinks, and at Colorado, who really stinks. So, I mean, right now, I mean, you start to look at their resume – it's not great. I mean, as of this whooped. moment, their resume is no better than Alabama's. They no, it's not. They, I mean, it's actually it. it's actually worse as of this moment. Their best win is at Washington, who's six and four. I mean, my guess is Washington may, may finish eight and four, and that's a road win. That's you know, I would put that up with whatever else Alabama has. But again, like you said, we're going to put on top of that that they would have won their conference title, and it would be against a, a legit top 10 team. I mean, to and that's me, the that's key. a differentiator. They, the Pac-12 really needs both those teams to win out before the conference title game because I think you would have a hard time keeping out a 12-1 and t- champion that just beat a top 10, 11-1 team. I mean, certainly Alabama's not going to have a win like that. So um, the one that's become a bit of a wild card to me is... Uh, I would have told you after the Kansas State game that there was a pretty good chance Oklahoma would do what they always do, get their act together and run the table. But you were there the other night, came down to an intercepted two-point conversion against Iowa State. I want I want to hear your thoughts on Oklahoma, what's going on with their defense. Do you have any concerns about Jalen Hurts as they go into a big game this week against Baylor? Yeah, um, they were up three touchdowns at halftime. But it was a weird feeling in the in the place because Jalen Hurts threw what you, I talked to Matt Campbell at the start of uh, the start of the second half coming out on the field, and he was like, "We had we dropped two pick sixes," and I I think that's right. I mean, I think that's accurate. I mean, Jalen Hurts was very impressive as he always is, evading trouble and converting third downs. There were six of eight on third downs in the in the first half and a lot of it had to do with his playmaking ability and ability to extend plays but some of his some of his passes were really trended into trouble and eventually he got picked off in the second half uh their defense looked like it was just ran out of gas i thought they played you know decent in the first half and then in the second half they had guys cramping up they had a bunch of injuries it just felt like they kind of like just really ran out of gas and lost some focus. And you could see Iowa State getting the momentum. And, you know, look, we both think Matt Campbell's a hell of a coach. And just from seeing them at field level and how they that hard that team plays, I'm even more convinced of it. You know, and he says, you know, I love our guys, and I know they're going to play their asses off in the second half. And we're going to see where it takes us. I mean, they had Alabama, they had Oklahoma on the ropes in that game, and I'm – Surprised they didn't convert the two-point play because that's the way it was headed. Um, going forward, I mean, there's a big game in the Big 12 this weekend. Oklahoma against undefeated number 12 Baylor in Waco. If Oklahoma wins that, you know, that, that'd be a really nice win. Then they have TCU, who's, I don't know if I, TCU's four and five. I think they're dangerous, but they're still four and five. You're not going to get a huge push on that. And then they have the Bedlam game where Oklahoma State is a, Top, what are they, number 23, I think, right now. They're 6-3. and They're dangerous. It's on the road. So I do think Oklahoma State at least had, I mean, I'm sorry, Oklahoma, those last three games, that's going to carry some weight, I think. That's going to help their resume, assuming they can win it. I don't feel that confident in them after seeing them this week, though. I mean, CeeDee Lamb's great, and I think Jalen is a real weapon for them. But they are flying pretty close to the sun right now. Yeah, that's the thing. That's the reason I brought it up just now was, you know, in in terms of that Alabama debate, if Oklahoma can get it together and be a 12-1 and 
champion. They would have beaten uh, Texas, who was uh, who's back in the top twenty-five now. I don't know if they'll stay there, but they're there. Uh, Baylor possibly twice. Oklahoma State, they're in. I just don't know if they can do it. And then on the flip side of that, with Baylor, who is the least talked about nine and OT Power Five team in the history of the sport, maybe. Um, you know, if they go 13-0 and and they're a Big 12 champion, they're in. No questions asked. I don't think they can afford a loss because their non-conference schedule was so bad uh, that I, I, you know, I don't. That's one where I don't think it would be that tough a decision for the committee if it was them in Alabama. This would be a good moment for me to tell you that uh, if you want some great coverage leading up to OU Baylor this week, Check out The Outside World with Jason Kersey, our Oklahoma writer. Great podcast. That's available anywhere you get podcasts. Um, We've gone 20 or so minutes into the show, and I think, Bruce, it's time to row the boat. Yeah, Stu and I, we both missed this prediction, and... Uh, I'll be honest, we were in the, our, our broadcast crew was in that six-day slide deal where it was either going to be go to Penn State to see them play 7-2 and two Indiana, who is now ranked, or have the Floyd game, which is Minnesota at Iowa. And I really thought, all right, Penn State's going to end this run. And Tanner Morgan was lights out, and the Gopher secondary is really, really good, and it played really good. And gave Sean Clifford all sorts of problems. I don't know. Did you get a chance to watch much of that? I did. Um, now, it, you know, it's interesting being being at a game this week. I now know what what you you know you often come on here and say, "Well, I didn't get to see this game, and I didn't get to say that game because I was at my game." I was able to watch a lot of Penn State Minnesota because it was before the Alabama LSU game. But once the Alabama LSU game kicked off, that's pretty much all I saw until the fourth quarter of your game, which we watched at a sports bar once we were done writing. Um, but that's okay. I mean, for a game that big, I will, I will, uh, I will take that. Um, I think that with Penn State, Minnesota, you know, first of all, just it was just so fun to watch that, that big field storming after the game and PJ Flex press conference afterward. I mean, I, I think ever since, you know, because of my experience being a student when Northwestern went to the Rose Bowl, out of nowhere, I always have like a sweet spot for those out of nowhere Cinderella type stories. For Minnesota to be nine and zero for the first time since nineteen oh four is remarkable, and I'm 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 just so um, I guess I would say envious of those Minnesota fans who are getting to experience that right now. But you know, so there was a stat. There were many stats that came out of this, like a first time since such and such. This was the first time since 1977 that they beat a top five team at home. Sometimes when you see those nuggets, you look back and you're like, oh, well, they were a top five team at the time, and then that team ended up going seven and four. That's not this. Penn State was 8-0. They were number four in the committee rankings, and they were holding opponents to under 10 points per game. And Minnesota shredded them. And, and, you know, Tanner Morgan almost, I mean, he only had two incompletions the entire game. Rashad Bateman had over 200 receiving yards. This was there was nothing fluky about this. They took it to him. And hats off to PJ Fleck. I wanted to bring this up because I feel like we often get asked about, or you often bring up our our coach rankings that we did last year. I don't believe either of us had PJ Fleck on there. I got to think when we do this next summer, he's going to be one of, if not the biggest movers up the charts. He definitely will be one of them. Yeah, I would say. I don't know how high we have him. The question is, what if they finish off, finish off this year and somehow win the Big Ten? He probably deserves to be a spot, you know, somewhere up in the top ten. But at this point, he definitely deserves a spot in the top twenty-five because he's now done this twice. I mean, he's he's he rebuilt Western Michigan from nothing to uh, New Year's Six team. He comes into Minnesota when they were going through a really uh, turbulent period, and that was another rebuild. And you know, we'll see how it finishes. I don't know if they'll be thirteen and zero, ten and two, somewhere in between. We'll see. But it's still going to be a, a remarkable season. Now, you talk to here's what I want to try to get at. You talk to coaches all the time. You know how certain coaches are viewed within the profession. I don't think it's I'm, it's a stretch here to say that there are a lot of 
skeptics of P.J. Fleck in the coaching profession? Yes, there are. Um, look, there's a handful of guys who are really successful who other coaches seem to uh, don't always love. You know, Jim, Jim Harbaugh is in that category. James Franklin, I think, is in that category. And P.J. Fleck is certainly in that category. But that's okay because you know who loves them? The Minnesota Gophers. And that's really all that matters. I mean, a lot of people think it's think some of the stuff is hokey they think they're skeptical they don't know if it's authentic you know what the people who who the only ones it should matter to are the ones who who are in that in that building you know and certainly the fans are going to love it because he's brought them a winner and they're winning like as you said in ways they've never done before whether anybody in the media is skeptical too you know what that doesn't matter also i mean look we've spent some time talking about the two the two biggest winners this weekend, PJ Fleck and Ed Ogeron. Neither guy got a were a, were a coordinator before they became their, a head coach for the first time, and they're both guys who've been mocked a lot. You know, it's not hard. You don't have to you don't have to be old takes exposed or whatever to go find people who who ridiculed those guys. Well, they're getting the last laugh right now because their teams believe it, and they don't really care what other people seem to think. And you know what? More power to him, I guess. Ogeron was ridiculed. I mean, obviously, he's a unique personality, but he was... The ridicule goes back to, an, obviously, a rough, rough three-year head coaching tenure at Ole Miss. So P.J. Fleck, nothing but success at Western. I mean, nobody could dispute what he did there. So I'm just kind of trying to get at. The reason he has that reputation is, right, he's so out there. He's so different than everybody else with the... All the slogans and the catchphrases, and I think people see it as as shameless self promotion. Yeah, you ask him how he's doing, he says, "I'm doing elite." Uh, it, 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 I think people find it hard to believe that it's authentic. I think people, I mean, you tell me. I think you know. You said he's never been a coordinator. I don't even think he's all that much of an X's and O's guy. Period. He he lets his coordinators do that. He's the spokesman, ambassador, motivator. And, and most of all, recruiter. But, uh, you know, I, I watched a little bit of the press conference afterward where he's very self-aware of it. He's very self-aware of the fact that people, that he's very different, that, that people see him very different. And he said, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe, just maybe, it might be that the way we're doing it is the right way to do it and that we're actually ahead of the curve a little bit. And some people might find that, might take umbrage with that statement, but he's getting the results. Um, you, you know, uh, let me pick up on that for a quick second. On So something was said in the broadcast. I don't know if you picked up on it, but uh, one of the No sound in the press box. Okay. One of the announcers, I don't remember who said it, but they told the story of Kirk Shiraka, who is the offense coordinator, been around the block a lot. And um, he had said, and Shiraka had been with PJ at Rutgers on Greg Schiano's staff and said to his wife, I guess he had three offers to go somewhere. And one of them was for to go to to uh, Western Michigan with PJ Fleck. And when he said it, it was like, well, he's telling his wife, and it's like, well, who do you, th- you know, it's almost like who do you bo- who do you believe the most? And I guess he had always said, I think PJ Fleck is going to be a hell of a head coach. And he hitched his wagon to PJ Fleck, and it's working. I mean, it has paid off. And um, I, I, you know, as you said, nothing fluky about it. I mean, Rashad Bateman is a stud. We did their first game of the year. He was the most impressive guy on that team, at least on the offense. He was a big receiver. They saw him at a satellite camp in Georgia. They sold him on the idea of, hey, we had Corey Davis. He went from two star to first round pick. You could be that, and. You know, Georgia tried to keep him at home. They beat Kirby Smart for him. They sold him on that. And again, I think that comes back to um, how much buy-in PJ Fleck is getting. And credit to him. I mean, I'm excited to see what's going to be this weekend because I was not an easy place for them to go. And it's a physical team. There's there's some good a uh, little bit of heat between the two teams. So I'm excited for our game this weekend. Yeah, and, and obviously. You know they they put so much into that Penn State game. It was such a big deal. It's going to be tough to turn around and play on the road. But I, Iowa uh, is certainly certainly beatable. I think it'll be a tough game. By the way, I'm 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 glad you're going to that game because I have to tell you, my absolute favorite trophy in all of college sports is the Floyd of Rosedale. 
the fact that two teams play for a bronze pig is just it's peak Big Ten, but just college football in general. You don't there's no other you're not seeing that in other sports where there's a there's a somebody's going to win and they're going to hoist a bronze pig afterward. I am extending an uh, invitation to you, Stu. I think you should come to this game, take all of it in. I think you should see row the boat in person. What do you say? You can crash in my. You can even crash in my room in Iowa City. It's a tempting offer. Uh, By the way, I'll sweeten it even more. I just checked the weather app. It is like 22 degrees there right now. Okay, well, (laughs) now I really want to (laughs) go. My wife is going to Japan on business, so I'm uh, homebound this weekend. Somebody has to uh, take care of our child. Uh, And I'm also planning to go to Ohio State, Penn State the next week. So got to save those miles. By the way, tell me if I'm being naive here. I did not look at this as a... I mean, Penn State played badly, no question about it. Sean Clifford threw three interceptions. But I didn't look at this as a Penn State gets exposed situation as much as Minnesota just having one of those days. I still think, you know, maybe nobody can touch Ohio State this season. I don't know. But I still think that Penn State game is going to be their toughest game of the year and uh, and and one that I don't think, just because they lost Minnesota, I wouldn't turn around and be like, uh, well, now, now they're, they're a fraud and they have no chance against Ohio State. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm with you on that. Uh, speaking of Ohio State, Stu, and this has got a little lost because of the weekend's games. Huge news going into the into Saturday, and that is Chase Young, who had been the most dominant player in college football. He is now on the sideline for Ohio State, uh, as we had reported on Friday night. Uh, he had borrowed money from a friend to pay for a ticket to fly his girlfriend out to California for the Rose Bowl. Uh, He had, if people don't know the story, you can go check it out on The Athletic. He had repaid the money, uh, sources tell me, in April. And also that the friend in question is not a booster and he is not an, and this person is not an agent. Now, where it goes from here is going to get interesting. I mean, he's already sat out the Maryland game, and they have Rutgers this weekend. They do not need Chase Young to beat Rutgers, obviously. Uh, But two weeks from now, they have Penn State, and then the final game, they have Michigan. So there's a lot of stuff for the NCAA and Ohio State's compliance people to sort out. Um, What do you think is going to happen? I think he'll be back for the Penn State game, and obviously I don't. I don't have any inside information. I just think that, and you brought up the a couple recent examples of uh, was a haha Clinton Dix got suspended for two games. Uh, you know there have been others like that. The thing about it is it's completely arbitrary. Uh, so the, there are some guidelines about well if it's this many dollars they have to sit this many games. I know there are skeptics who are going to say there's no way that this was just some good Samaritan family friend that it had to be. If it's not an agent, it's somebody connected to an agent, blah, blah, blah. But if they can really prove that it was a family friend, that it's repaid, I don't think he's going to sit more than one more game. I could be wrong, but um, like I said, it's arbitrary. Uh, it can be negotiated down. You know, it's not a. It's not as, and this is not going to surprise anybody that with the NCAA involved, it's not as some clear-cut sentencing guideline. Uh, I also think it was interesting on Friday, right, it was... Chase Young, you know, one of if not the best players in college football, has this com- news come out. Um, then Memphis's top basketball player, possibly the number one recruit in the country, it comes out that his coach Penny Hardaway gave him gave his family eleven thousand dollars when he was still in high school to move to Memphis to play for his high school team. Now that one is pretty cut. I said I just got done saying it's not cut and dried. That one's pretty cut and dried. If that's how it's described, that guy's ineligible. But they're they took him to court and they're still playing him. Whereas Ohio State is doing it the old-fashioned way and sitting him out as a precaution. Uh, my point is that in both cases, the reaction was not generally was not cheaters. You know, uh, they need to be punished. It was this is so stupid. Why are we still doing this? Why why is Chase Young ha- having to sit out games because of what I assume is a fairly small amount of money in the grand scheme of things? And honestly, if it really was for his girlfriend to travel to the Rose Bowl, I mean, there's uh, both in the NCAA with the Final Four, 
in the college football playoff in the championship game, they pay for two family members to attend the uh, to attend those games. I know she's not a family member, but it's like the spirit is the same, right? This was this was a pretty um, innocent thing that he was borrowing this money for. Well, I think what the NCAA is going to have to determine here, there's a lot of variables. And, you know, look, as we said in our story, all these cases are unique. I mean, I talked to some compliance experts and said, well, this sounds like ha ha Clinton Dix, kind of. And this person said it may, but you, there's just a lot of things. Each of these cases are very unique into themselves. I mean, how much, what was the exact dollar figure? What was Young's answer when this information came forth? What was the timing and why did he pay it back when he paid it back? Uh, what is the relationship of this person with Young? And also, uh, what kind of connections does this person have in the sports world? You know, are they a money manager? There's, there's certain things that, that I think there is some, some level of skepticism that's going to come up from the NCAA enforcement staff so you know from talking to some people within the within the within that world uh what i was hearing was was probably going to be one to three games he was going to have to sit out the third game that would be penn state that would not that would be important yeah so we'll see what are your Uh, thoughts on the conspiracy theory that maryland tipped off ohio state right before they're about to play ohio state I have no idea about that, but I mean, <laughs> no knock, no knock on Mike Loxley's team, but Ohio, you know, Ohio State doesn't need Chase Young to beat them bad. I don't, I don't think. Oh, they don't have Chase Young that we have a we have a good chance of winning. I mean, I don't think they could have had me or you at defensive end and still won that game like the way they did. But you know, they could have. They played twelve other defensive linemen. They could have played that 12th guy. They could have played any walk-on defensive lineman in their program, and they still would have won handily. And, and by the way, this is yet another reason why it's so hard for a defensive player to win the Heisman. You know, you had all that buzz coming off of the Wisconsin game. Uh, Joe Burrow, obviously, I think what Joe Burrow did the other night puts him in the um, kind of the Lamar Jackson level driver's seat. Remember a few years ago where even after he lost – uh, to Louisville, I mean to Houston, it didn't seem to matter. Like I think Joe Burrow has that kind of commanding lead. I think now. he has a different command. Joe Burrow's on the on Louisville wasn't where LSU is right now. I think that changes it. Also, Joe Burrow is a change agent of what you know. Bobby Petrino's had really good offenses. This is to me so much. I'm not. I'm not trying to compare what he's doing versus what Lamar Jackson is doing. I'm saying I don't. I, I think he has distanced himself to the point where, for some reason, he went out and threw three picks uh, this week against Ole Miss, but they won. He'd still be the Heisman front. Well, what is your Heisman top three right now, by the way? I asked if I could just put Burrow in all three spots, but I was told no. Good. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad the higher ups thought that. Yeah, I did. Uh, Burrow, Hurts, and Chase Young. Hmm. What'd you do? I did Burrow, Hurts, and Chase Young. Um, I gotta admit, after after the way Jalen played, seeing you know seeing it on the field was different than what it what it looked like in the box score. It was you know like I said, there were some picks he really got away with there, and I'm sure that happens with quarterbacks, you know where there's some stuff that eh, you get their highlights when they go well and they're and if they the other team doesn't capitalize, they're just kind of empty plays. But I did not, um, I don't know, it was. If there was somebody else I, I was tempted to put second, I probably would have um, in that regard. Do you think that the Oklahoma Heisman candidate should actually be C.D. Lamb? Uh, that discussion came up on our uh, with our crew a little bit, um, or at least that he should maybe have earned a spot to go to New York. He is a fantastic player. Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, but... I, I could see him being a top, you know, one of the people who gets in the top 10, especially with, uh, you know, that region of the country now is not Sam Ellinger is, you know, he's, I don't want to say he's had a terrible year, but just like in big 12 country, it's not like people are looking at, at Charlie Brewer and going to put him up there. It's not like there's really anybody else. You know, I guess you could put, you know, Chuba up there. It, well, I think Tua will be there in the end. Uh, he 
he might have fallen off some people's lists this week because he lost, because he had two pretty bad turnovers. But you look at his stats on the whole, they're still ridiculous, just like they were last year. He's He could end up being one of those guys. Like, you look back and how did Andrew Luck not win the Heisman while he was in college? Like, Tua could end up being one of those guys if he finishes second again. Uh, but I just want to share a quick stat courtesy of our friend Joel Klatt about Burrow. Uh, Joe Burrow versus ranked opponents this year. 78% completions, 365 yards a game, 11.3 yards per attempt, 26 touchdowns, 3 interceptions. That's about as remarkable a stat line against, that's just against the good teams that I think I've seen. Yeah, I mean, you pick your numbers. I mean, with him on the road, 17 touchdowns, one interception. I mean, he at this point is running away with the Heisman. And again, I don't I don't know what, if he has a bad game in the SEC title game, if he has a bad game against A&M, we'll see. You know, who knows? But I, I still think there's a, there's a big, large, big margin for error there. I guess the guy that could maybe throw a wrinkle in it is Justin Fields if he has a huge game because they're going to play down the stretch, right? Three games that three straight games that everybody will be watching: Mich- uh, Penn State, Michigan, and the Big Ten title game. His problem is that would it be him? Would it be J.K. Dobbins? Would it be Chase Young? Like, there's not a clear. This is clearly Ohio State's Heisman guy. No doubt, no doubt. Uh, Real quick, uh, we do have another coaching search to discuss. Yet another second-year coach is gone, Chad Morris at Arkansas. Who? So I'm in the press box before the LSU Alabama game, and you're starting to see that score. And and I thought there was a decent chance Western Kentucky was going to beat Arkansas, but it just kept getting more and more lopsided to the point where we're like, is he going to get fired? Remember, Brett Bielema got fired coming off the field after his last game is, is that going to happen to chad morris today it, it was never an, it was not a question of is he going to get fired it was how soon after the game ends is he going to get fired uh it turns out they waited till sunday morning um i think that that was one of those hires that if you could have you i'm sure arkansas would love to have a mulligan on i don't think that was a good fit for for nearly for a lot of reasons but it just couldn't have gone worse he ended up with he ended up in two years. Not only did he not win an SEC game or beat a Power Five team, he went four and four against Group of Five teams. He lost to Colorado State, North Texas, San Jose State, and Western Kentucky at an SEC school. Yeah, that uh, that's a tough that's a tough sell. I mean, look, I would love for an SEC historian, uh, Tony Barnhart, maybe some sort of SEC historian type, to tell me whether. That was the worst coaching tenure, head coaching tenure in SEC. I'm sure maybe there was a Vanderbilt coach somewhere that would that would be equally uh, uh, equally woeful. Doesn't get much worse than that. Um, so, are you ready to crank up the gust to Arkansas uh, cycle all over again, just like two years ago? Uh, I think so. Look, I mean, they're going to have to reach some kind of financial settlement. I don't know if that means. That means Arkansas and Gus would have to pay Auburn three million or four million to get him out of there. I mean, he would be he he would have to pay seven million to leave, and they would have to pay him. I think the number uh, I don't have my column. I actually wrote about this yesterday. It's just been a long weekend, but uh, I think it was twenty seven million to get out. So if they wanted to fire him, and I think that look. It's a weird situation right now, just as we said. They're 6-2. and two, They're top 15. But a lot could change if they lose to to Georgia and Alabama, which I think they will. Then they're 8-4. and four. I feel like once you're on the hot seat and have been on the hot seat, especially at a place like Auburn, um, with its big money boosters, sky-high expectations, and Nick Saban in the same state, uh, I don't know. I think the opportunity to go home, reset his clock, as a coach, I think that will be appealing to me. As I wrote in, on the Athletic, I think it's Gus. I think it's Mike Norvell, who went to college in that state, whose stock is pretty high, but is also a Florida State candidate. I think. Uh, I think those are the guys to watch more than any others here. Okay, Stu, back to the podcast in a second, but I want to ask you a question. So, when you're lounging out on the couch watching a day's worth of college football, what do you do for food? 
It's a great question and a very timely one. I When there's four games coming down to the wire at once, I don't have time to go downstairs and make something, much less go pick something up. So just this past Saturday night, I used our new sponsor, DoorDash. Click a couple buttons, and my favorite uh, restaurant that serves uh, fantastic chicken kebabs was at my door. DoorDash connects you to your favorite restaurants in your city. Not only is your favorite pizza joint already on DoorDash, but there are over... 340,000 restaurants in 3,300 cities. So you might find a new favorite too. And right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code AUDIBLE. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code AUDIBLE. Don't forget, that's promo code AUDIBLE for $5 off your first order from DoorDash. The parallels to 2017 here are are pretty ridiculous. Gus, at this exact point two years ago, also had two losses. Also was people saying, I mean, people assumed they were going to lose to both Georgia and Alabama, at which point they thought he'd be fired. And instead, he went out and beat both of them, went to the SEC title game, and got a $49 million contract out of it. So when you're talking about, well, he's going to have to pay this much to be fired, or what, like, I think this all depends on the next two games. If he does that again, he's is he really going to leave for Arkansas at that point? Um, and are and is it really going to be if they do lose the two games? Are they really going to run him off? I I think it's hard to say at this point. Yeah, I, it is hard to say. And again, this, the timing of this is going to be interesting. Like I said, because Florida State is open. Uh, if they make a run at Mike Norvell, I think Mike Norvell would probably be inclined to take that job in the ACC where Florida State is better positioned to be a powerhouse than Arkansas is in the SEC West. So let's say Mike Norvell ends up getting the Florida State job. That's I'm not saying that's definitely going to happen or anything like that, but I'm just saying if you're Arkansas and that's one of your other candidates, I think you got to be kind of – you got to – start to play this out in your head how does this search work how much leverage do we have to try to bring gus in here and if it does if it isn't gus and if mike norvell doesn't you know isn't a candidate then what do you do do you look at mike leach who who i would think would take the job do you look at brian harson who coached at arkansas state and has done well at boise um do you look at willie fritz i i don't know there's that's this is a job that's had good history. You're not that far from a good recruiting base, certainly in Texas, but you're in the SEC West. It is such an uphill battle there. I mean, I don't know what you do if, if it's not Gus or Norbell. Well, big game for Auburn against Georgia this week, and I think we'll know better where things stand after that. I mean, if he beats Georgia, um, they're, they're in position to go to a major bowl game, and obviously... Uh, after what we saw from Alabama, I'm not sure anybody's going to guarantee that they're necessarily going to lose to Alabama. Um, but if they go eight and four and they're heading to the Citrus Bowl, um, <laughs> I mean, it's like you said, once you're on the hot seat, it's hard to work your way off of it, and especially at Auburn. Um, and, and if I'm Gus, I, I go, I take it. I, I, you know, whether it's Arkansas or Florida State, I would say time to get a fresh start somewhere. Um, by the way, your guy Leach. Was on well yet again on the wrong end of a uh, bizarre Pac-12 officiating mistake that they had to admit to, and this one is just incomprehensible to me. This wasn't like is it targeting or is it not targeting? They and they, they of course they put this out late Sunday nights, hoping nobody would notice. Cal Washington State. I wasn't watching the game. I didn't see this happen. Uh, Washington State's down eight. They return a kickoff to the fifty-yard line. The officials mean to call hands to the face on on uh, Cal, which would give them another 15 yards and put them at the Cal 35, which tremendous field position. Instead, it somehow ends up being called on Washington State half the distance to the goal, and they start at their own eight. That is a mistake that cost them 57 yards. And so I don't know how Pac-12 is ever going to shake this reputation of having the worst referees. When stuff like this, I'm laughing about it, but it, who knows what would have happened if they, if they had actually enforced it correctly. Maybe Washington State would have won. As it was, they lost. And now probably is looking at, um, you know, are they actually going to be able to make a bowl game? Yeah, it's, um, wow. It, it, you know, it is hard. You're right. It is just, it's almost impossible to live down the reputation when mistakes of that magnitude happen. And you're like, 
how does this happen in college football, right? Like if you if you heard this happen in in like high school football somewhere in like in in like New Hampshire, you'd be like, ooh, that's bad. That's that's really the amateur hour. Um, but in the Pac-12, come on. There wasn't somebody somewhere in that operation, either on the field or above, that could say, whoa, whoa, wait, you were supposed to call it on the other team. <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing because it's so absurd, but it's actually, this is why that conference struggles so much with credibility. It's, it's this kind of stuff keeps happening. Uh, we should get to the mailbag. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. All right, first question is from Tom. In State College, Bruce and Stu love the podcast. It makes my walks around campus much more enjoyable. Thank you, Tom. Even with a disappointing loss to Minnesota, I find it maddening that James Franklin's name continues to be brought up for any open job, as if Penn State is a stepping stone rather than a destination job. This team is a year ahead of schedule, and barring some unforeseen events, 2020 will bring back a loaded roster and presents best Penn State the best chance to win a national title since 2017. I can't see Franklin leaving that for anything, even the glitz and glamour of the L.A. lifestyle at USC. However, if Franklin were to leave his home state, who do you think would be the most likely 2020 Penn State coach, Matt Rule, Joe Moorhead, or the field? Hmm, good choices. I don't know. Does Matt Rule want to go back home? Is his next move to the NFL? I don't know. He's making quite a bit of money right now as his deal with Baylor. So I don't think it's a lock that he's going to take anything else in college sports unless they're paying him a lot. But it is home for him. Um, Joe Moritz had, had some struggles, no no secret, at, at, at Mississippi State. I would have thought he would have been the leader in the clubhouse. But, you know, not a great first year and, and, a, and a even less not great second year, I think has probably taken some shine off of his options there I think people in Penn State still really have a lot of respect for him but I don't think it's a lock one other I think there's two other names I would throw out in this case one is Matt Campbell at Iowa State who I really think I'm convinced now Matt Campbell I think if I'm USC he's somebody who should I would definitely have on on my radar because I think he's that good uh, the other one is Matt Rule. I'm not sorry. The other one is Luke Fickle, who has done a really good job at Cincinnati. I see him, you know, more geared into a, a big Big Ten job. You know, if and when Mark D'Antonio walks away at Michigan State, I would have thought he's he's a likely candidate. Um, so I could see those guys as the guys in a, in on Penn State. Which one would be the most likely? It's hard to say because. I think, you know, if Matt Rule didn't just do this deal with Baylor, I would have said him. But the deal he's got there, I'm not sure Penn State would be able to offer him a sweeter deal. Well, if that's the case, I'm taking the field. Because Matt Rule does seem like the fairly obvious choice. But if we're talking about two people versus every other coach in college football, uh, I guess I'm going to take the field. Stu, this question is from Corey in Sad Alabama, as Corey puts it. Uh, regarding the review of the out-of-bounds catch in the Alabama-LSU game, shouldn't they change the rule to be able to review the whole play if you're already looking at it? I understand things not being reviewable in terms of stopping the game for it, but they basically ruled that an illegal catch was a catch just because they could only review a single aspect of the play. I've seen other reviews like this as well, and it seems very dumb to say you want to get it right, but ruling illegal plays legal. What do you think, Stu? So this was one of those situations where, as you know, like some, if you're in the press box, you, like we didn't know what was going on in that. You actually wished at that moment you were watching on TV because you're going to have a rules analyst on there who can explain it. But from what I was told, even the rules analyst didn't have a good answer. Then at halftime, I go to the bathroom and the CBS broadcast booth is like right next to the bathroom. And I see Gary Danielson talking to somebody and they're still trying to figure out what happened. We eventually got the explanation that because the on-field official ruled that he had been pushed out and then came back in, which is allowed, replay couldn't overturn that part of it. I agree with Corey. Again, another example of college for for all the stakes and all the money and and frankly all the I mean, college sports is let's be honest, pretty professionalized. 
it's like they're still operating in the 1960s with officiating. And now I get that what I get the motivation, I get the um, the rationale behind why certain things can't be reviewed. They that's considered a judgment call, just like in the um, in the onside kick in the Oklahoma Kansas State game where they said they couldn't replay couldn't determine wasn't allowed to determine whether the guy got pushed into the ball. That's an on-field judgment call. But but let's just correct it. Let, let's stop worrying about the semantics of it. If it's wrong, let's correct it. What's the point of reviewing the play if you're still going to come out of it with the wrong call? I, I don't know. I would agree with you, Stu, but uh, did you read my column or my story out of uh, Sunday on Ogeron? I did. Okay, so this is a... F- this is like a kind of a little mind blowing, uh, a full circle. His the first time he coaches against, and for people who haven't read the column on the Athletic, the first time he ever coached against Nick Saban was his last year at Ole Miss and Saban's first year at Alabama. There is a play that gets reviewed, and it is a catch, and Shea Hodge, the receiver for Ole Miss on a fourth and twenty-two, makes this remarkable catch, and. Sets up Ole Miss for what looks like it'll be the game-winning play. And then Saban calls timeout. After five minutes, the officials review it and say, nope, the receiver went out of bounds on his own and was the first one in to touch the ball. Incompletion. Basically game over. And I I, I talked to Shea Hodge, who's now is ironic because he's he is now a coach, and he actually was in the building uh, for the game on Saturday. And he said, you know, that reminded me of my play where what was crazy on that one was if you watched it, it does look like he takes the ball away from the Alabama DB. So he wouldn't have been the first one to touch it. But Shea Hodge said it was clear for anybody who saw it. It was like he that guy pushed me out of bounds. And in that case, the SEC officials had to rule it was to overturn it like that there was something conclusive. And it was kind of everybody on the Ole Miss side was incredulous that they could do that. Not that it was ruled the first way. So the idea that this kind of came back, and obviously Ole Miss doesn't benefit, Ogeron did, but uh, it, was, it was pretty, like I said, it was kind of a mind-blowing moment to see how, how it happened with, uh, with Thaddeus Moss there. That's crazy. I don't get as ticked off about missed calls as the fans do because I don't have an emotional investment in it. But it what just infuriates me is that Nobody will just step up and do something to make the overall process modern, right? I mean, the most the most glaring example of that being it's 2019. The players all have chips on them. You know exactly how many miles per hour Christian McCaffrey is running. We know uh, Alabama knows how much, uh, you know, what percentage of their normal exertion they're giving in the fourth quarter. But when we need to determine if a ball went 10 yards, we bring out these guys with these chains. Uh, it's insane. Somebody needs to step up and modernize, use actual technology and modernize college football. It'll never be perfect. The refs are human. They're going to make some mistakes. But some of these ones that are easily correctable, like, come on, man. Let's get our act together here. Uh, David Perry, Belton, Texas. People love asking us these coaching rumors questions, Bruce. I think because you're known as the coaching carousel guy. David Perry, Belton, Texas. Stu and Bruce, one name I'm curious about for coaching one of the Blue Bloods, USC or Florida State, Brian Kelly. I know he has a great job at Notre Dame, and they've had some great seasons recently. However, with the chance to go to one of the most talent-rich uh, places in the country, either the Southeast or Southern California, be enticing enough to lure him away. We know the man can coach and win with talent in those areas, not to mention it'd be a pretty splashy hire. Uh, you know, look... If he ever ended up at USC, I think there would be a lot of people who go, wait a minute, how could they do that? He coaches at the arch rival. Uh, Brian Kelly has been at Notre Dame a long, long time. And no, to be at Notre Dame for more than five years is an exceptionally long time to work in with that structure and some of the challenges that are there. Um, look, I could see USC thinking, hey, we should put him on our list and maybe consider him. I couldn't see him as much at Florida State. Now, look, what I'm about to say with Florida State, if you're a USC person, go, wait a minute, it's USC too. The leadership challenges and the leadership dynamic at, at FSU are very messy right now. 
I mean, there's going to be some changes. Whoever becomes the head football coach is going to probably deal with a new president and a new AD in the not-too-distant future. USC has all sorts of leadership challenges too, but that structure at least has for now been sorted out in the, in the future. There is a new president, Carol Folt. They, you know, there is a new AD and Mike Bone. So I think some of that makes it a little more manageable also. And again, I don't know if you disagree with me. USC is a, is a better job than Florida State. And I would argue why I think USC is a top three job in college football. You're the heavyweight in the, in the Pac-12. There's nobody close to you. Right now at Florida State, you're, you're in there with Clemson, and Clemson is the heavyweight. So I think from that part, it makes it a little bit more challenging. Um, and so I think there's, there's definitely something to, to wonder about of what's Brian, if Brian Kelly's going to make a next move. Where do you go from Notre Dame? I mean, you would think almost anything um, would be a very, very different environment to work in. So I don't know. I mean, if, if I was a USC fan, I'd be curious what they would think of having Brian Kelly because he's definitely a really good coach and he's won a lot of games there. It's just, I don't know. People are going to look at him and go, I just can't see him there. I can. I mean, I don't think he would go, but I think, I think if USC could get Brian Kelly, they should get Brian Kelly. I think he would actually be very successful there. Uh, okay, let a, me ask you, stop you yeah. right there before you finish. I'll give you three coaches. You tell me who you think, what you rank them as for USC. Brian Kelly, Matt Campbell, James Franklin. Give me your order. Hmm. That is tough. I like all of them. Um, If I'm going by just who do I think is the best football coach or has the most upside, I would say Matt Campbell, but he's obviously less experienced than the other two. Uh, I think James Franklin would do very well there. The point I was going to make about Brian Kelly is that he, so much of that job, right, is is being a salesman, is being a, a out in the the media and selling U.S. in you know in a, in a market that's a very crowded marketplace. And just like Pete Carroll and his, I could see Brian Kelly uh, being, uh, you know, he, he's very charismatic. He would do well in that regard. Uh, I just think, I just don't think he he. I could be wrong. I don't think he has the interest at this point in his career to make that move. He's actually said several times in the last couple of years he plans to retire at Notre Dame, and I don't think he's saying that in the way that, uh, you know, coach, generic Coach X says that to please the fans. I think he means that, so I don't think he's going. But if they could get him, certainly, do, certainly don't rule him out if you're USC because he coaches your rival. That would be the dumbest reason uh, to, to, to leave him out. Want to ask this last one? Sure. This one, Stu, is from Ryan O'Sullivan. Stu and Bruce, Stu made the observation that the top three teams in the country, LSU, Ohio State, and Clemson, have identified themselves at this point. I don't think it would be a stretch to say that if any of those three teams squared off against any other on a neutral site, it would likely be a very equal matchup. Going back to the BCS era, this would potentially be a big problem as one of these would have to be left out of the national title game. With the CFP, we are virtually guaranteed that two, the two best teams coming out of the regular season will have a shot to earn the national championship. So my question is, what is accomplished by expanding the playoff? Ooh, this is a good question, Stu. I want to hear your answer. It's a great question. It really is. Uh, and by the way, it, can you imagine if it was the BCS, if those three teams all went undefeated and somebody got left out? I assume, well, I don't know. I, would it be Clemson? At this point, it would be because they have the they have the the least resume at this point. Okay, so the undefeated defending national champions would be left out of the BCS. They'd have to blow up the Dan Wessel would have to write a whole another book about it and blow it up again. Uh, I I get what he's saying. I mean, I think I don't think there are more than four national championship uh, caliber pro teams in any given year. I think the people who want to expand the playoff, I could be wrong, are not, uh, the motivation there is not to, because you think the national champion is getting left out right now. It's it's the same team that would win the national championship in the four team is going to win it in the eight team probably, unless they lose their quarterback to a collarbone injury because they had to play an extra game. Um, the people that want to expand it just either A, want to see more football in December and January, more meaningful football, don't feel like the bowl games give them that, or B, 
B, don't, uh, are fed up with the arbitrary nature of a committee picking the teams. They want to be able to just say, if you win your conference, you're in. Or C, are sick of seeing the SEC and Clemson dominate the playoff and would like to see it be more of a true national event where the Pac-12 will always have a team in it and the Big 12 will always have a team in it. And, of course, I assume, Group of Five would always have a team in it. It's not about determining the national champion. It's about just making it like every other sport and having a more um, wide-open event. Okay. Uh, Well, I think we will have much more to talk about on the Audible Extra later this week. As always, thanks for all your questions. Stu, anything else to share? Um. Yes, actually, remember sometimes we used to do shout outs, okay, but we never remember to do that anymore. Okay. I would like to give a shout out and a bit of a mea, mea culpa. Bleh. I would like to give a shout out and a bit of a mea culpa to Lovey Smith, the beard. Uh, Got to admit, spent most of the last three years mocking him. Thought he would be gone by now or by the end of this season. Uh, biggest comeback in school history to beat Michigan State. Bowl eligible already, six and four, uh, heading toward probably at least seven and five because they're going to play Northwestern at the end, and, and maybe even eight and four if they can beat Iowa. So I'd like to just own up right now to the fact that I totally underestimated Lovey. Okay, uh, I feel like I should give a shout out to Dennis Dodd. You know why? Because you've been crapping all over sixty somethings all year, and I feel like it's saying a lot about you're an ageist too. I'm just kidding. I don't know why you're still on this agent ageist rant, but I saw Dennis at the game, and I got to say, we've always kind of joked that he's the hardest working man in sports. Whereas I'm, you know, traveling less now, as are a lot of national writers. He said he's traveled to a game all but one week this year. He, when I saw him, we were standing in line. We had to get, we all got there really early because of the enhanced security. So I think it was four hours before kickoff. He'd already been there for hours. He had his earpiece in because he does all these video hits for CBS Sports HQ now. So I would say the man is working harder in his 60s than I was in my 20s and 30s. So I will join you in that shout out. All right. But not because I'm an ageist. Okay, fair enough. All right. We will talk to you guys later this week. If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link theathletic.com slash the audible that's 40% off your subscription to the athletic talk about it for years oh, yeah. oh, oh.